It's 10am on Wellington's waterfront and the stock exchange has just gone live. Share prices are now rolling across a digital screen on the outside of the NZX's building. It's an image of a modern, well-run share market that's now providing some good returns. However, its future is far from secure. The NZX has few big companies listed and the top performers it does have are at risk of leaving or being bought out. For many, the threat to the NZX's future lies in an ongoing reluctance of New Zealanders to consider shares as an investment option. In recent years, investors have preferred to go for residential housing, a trend some business leaders warn is putting the country's future at risk. If we continue the way we are, we'll see the productive economy dwindle and die. As a result of that, we will all have to learn to live on less. If New Zealanders do not start saving and investing wisely and taking sensible risks to grow businesses, either domestically or with an international focus, we actually don't have a future as a sovereign nation. The Reserve Bank, the IMF and OECD have all lectured New Zealanders on their obsession with housing investment and the need to hold other financial assets like shares. But why have New Zealanders turned their back on the share market in favour of property? To answer that, we need to go back to October the 20th, 1987. The damage is still immense. Braley closed this morning 98 cents lower than last night, which means just over $1,000 million has been cut off the company's share market value in just a couple of hours. The same goes for Fletcher Challenge. It's down $1.05. Radio New Zealand's then business editor Grant Williams describes the carnage unfolding on the New Zealand Stock Exchange following Wall Street's slump. Within hours, billions is lost, and within weeks this country's booming share market is bust. I don't know anyone who believes that we are anything like approaching uh, some collapse. We, are, we clearly are not. While Prime Minister David Longy was right about there being no total collapse, the fund manager at Brook Asset Management, Simon Botherway, says New Zealand was hit harder than most. The impact of that crash was very severe in, in New Zealand and far more so than in most other countries. Uh, for example, in the US, what we refer to as the crash was merely a, a sort of bull market correction. In fact, by the beginning of 1990, their major indices had in fact exceeded their highs prior to the crash. The Shareholders Association Chief Executive Bruce Shepard says it wasn't a surprise people were burned. In 1987, our stock market was dominated by speculative companies that were grossly overgeared with debt at very high interest rates. They had, in essence, been kindergarten kids let loose in the playground in 1984 with no supervision, and in essence they binged and they became completely irrational and many major companies were very poor investments. Mum and Dad investors were in shock. Auckland clinical psychologist who specialises in executive stress management has been flooded with calls from people hit by the rapid slide in share prices. Pierre Beautrey says stress from the market collapse is just another component of a major stress build-up caused by many elements in modern day life and he has some advice for those who may be affected by financial loss in the last few days. They should try to be with somebody who uh, will support them and be caring with them they should see it as an opportunity to perhaps see that their values have been askew in the past anyway. The legacy of the 87 crash would see a generation of investors giving up on the stock market. The director at Milford Asset Management, Brian Gaynor. We haven't lost the investors. What they have done is, 
uh, instead of investing in the share market, they've gone into residential property. And all the macro figures tell you that. So we have lost a generation of share market investors. The performance of corporate New Zealand in the years following the crash hasn't always helped in restoring confidence. There's the long drawn-out battle over the control of winemaker Montana, the collapse of Air New Zealand and the failure of Feltex to name a few. The NZX's chief executive Mark Weldon. Certainly there was a major hangover in the early 90s. Uh, some of the things that happened in the late 90s uh, around Montana and the reputation of the market uh, were not helpful or healthy, uh, but those have really been cleaned out. And over the last five years, the market performance has been in the top uh, 10% of all global markets. And we haven't had any Enrons, HIHs, Worldcoms. It's a very clean, transparent market. But despite good returns for investors in recent years, the NZX is still struggling to attract a healthy number of local corporates that investors can put their money into. Brian Gaynor. If you look at the benchmark index, which is the indexes that go back over 30 or 40 years, capital index, our share market is still about 19% below where it was at the peak in 1987. Whereas, for example, the Australian share market, as measured by the Australian All Ordinaries Index, is 185% higher than it was at its peak in 1987. So the performance of both markets has been dramatically different, albeit that over the last 10 years our market has picked up. So, put off by the memories of 87 and a dearth of solid firms to invest in, it's hardly surprising people have looked elsewhere for somewhere to put their cash. There's two loos, there's a loo out the back and then the bath- and that's a new bathroom. So there's a new bathroom but then it needs a new kitchen. I don't know, I mean, that's quite nice. But... Despite signs the housing market is slowing, this open home last weekend was still pulling in the punters. So it's already under offer so we're going to have to go fast if we want to... People have poured money into residential housing in recent years, backed by tens of billions of dollars of foreigners' savings. Savings borrowed at cheap fixed-term interest rates through New Zealand's mainly Australian-owned banks. And why wouldn't you invest? House prices have doubled in six years. But what's distinctive about the boom is the number of people snapping up two, three or four houses with the aim of reaping big capital gains. Treasury estimates that one in six households now own a second home, and one in 12 own a rental property. By comparison, direct holdings of shares make up just 4% of total household assets. Figures the Reserve Bank says put us out of line with other OECD countries. Senior economist at Infometrics Gareth Kiernan says the switch to property's been huge. If you look at the where households tend to do their savings or store their wealth, a, a vast majority of it is in property, perceived as being uh, safer than the share market. And certainly in terms of direct investment by households and shares, that's uh, still well below the peak it was in 1986-1987. For Wellington property investor Ben Stevens, choosing housing over shares was easy. If you look at managed funds, I mean, I don't know a lot about them. This is only what I've read. And even in the stock market, you don't really have any control over what happens with them? I mean, they can give you forecasts, but you know you're open to well influences or a small market, money offshore, um, and you don't really have any insight of what the companies are doing. You get a yearly report, and you're really just concerned about what how your fund's doing. Um, but as again, the property, you can actually see the direct reflection of what's happening around the neighbourhood. You're involved. You're in the heart of the market, which you're you're dealing with. So um, it's a little bit more easy to understand than something that is done from a desk. Tax is seen as a big reason why people choose property, 
In most cases, housing is free of capital gains tax because that only applies to investment properties when it is clear they were bought with the purpose of on-selling for profit. The IRD is only now taking a tougher line on speculators flouting those rules. However, most residential property bought as a rental or with the intention of being a second home will be exempt. Gareth Kiernan. Housing does have that advantage um, over shares and, and over uh, uh, fixed interest and, and that sort of thing as well. So, um, yeah, definitely I think that's been something that's kept the housing market going over the, over the last 10 years. Being a contributor, I mean, there's obviously always other factors driving the housing market as well, but um, the tax, tax advantages, particularly when, you, of course, you can borrow uh, to invest in property, which is a, a lot harder to do with shares unless you've got some other collateral sitting behind you. Shares bought for resale do face capital gains tax. However, shares held long-term for dividends can be sold free of capital gains tax. Where property enjoys an advantage over shares is with a practice known as negative gearing. This is where landlords own multiple rental properties but don't necessarily get enough back in rent to cover their borrowing costs. Under laws introduced in 1991, they can then write off losses and depreciation on their properties against other income. This cuts their tax burden and makes it possible to hold loss-making houses for long-term capital gain. Property investor Ben Stevens. It's just balancing people's individual aspects and how they can do it. And, you know, using someone else's money to, can enable them to make more money. You're buying a product that's worth you know, 400000 on a deposit, maybe $40,000 with inflation, all those different types of things, capital appreciation. You're making appreciation on the 400000 as opposed to the 40000 the chief executive at the New Zealand Institute of Economic Research, Brent Layton, says income tax is also a factor. I think if you're looking for a single cause for that, and I don't think it is a single cause, uh, it's 39 cents in the dollar tax rate. You decide to impose an 80% premium on people uh, if they uh, put it in the bank and get interest, as opposed to putting it in a house and capital gains and zero, people will take the, the corresponding action and allocate their assets accordingly. But let's be clear, it's not people investing in property that is of concern to economists, unions, business leaders and the Reserve Bank. Property investment is needed to ensure a steady supply of rental accommodation. What worries the likes of Brian Gaynor is that people are putting all their investment eggs in one basket. Figures show that of household wealth in, in New Zealand, 79% of it is held in residential property. It's 61% of wealth of individuals in Australia is held in residential property and less than 50% in the United States. In, a residential property should be part of people's portfolio, but it shouldn't represent 79% of an individual's total wealth. There should be far more money in financial assets, particularly the share market. But why does investment in housing present a threat to the overall economy. In a bid to boost exports, 2007 has been made export year. Down here at the Port of Wellington, the mountains of shipping containers suggest it's going well. But while exports like dairy are booming, the size of exports as a percentage of the overall economy has not grown much in 20 years. For some, the blame for sluggish export growth lies with housing. The New Zealand Manufacturers and Exporters Association Chief Executive, John Wally. Houses, property, assets that don't make things are simply static assets that sit there and don't do anything. Assets that make things, assets that drive income, 
do develop and drive growth. The government's economic transformation policy is centred on boosting living standards through increased innovation and an improved export performance. But Bruce Shepherd says those aims won't be achieved if people don't change their investing habits. Economies only grow with innovation. They only get better if they're continually taking risks and endeavouring to add value to their society, their infrastructure, etc. That's the role of companies and equity investing, to take sensible risk that's well managed and deliver value by way of technological or other improvements. When a country is starved of equity capital, it ceases to have a pool of money available with which to innovate. Without a large pool of relatively cheap local cash available for new start-up firms, foreign-owned banks have taken up the slack. Brian Gaynor. The absence of, of, uh, of savings and capital to invest in businesses is a big detriment. Uh, an awful lot of companies, when they start off in New Zealand and they're still pretty small, have to rely on the banks. And the bank's uh, lending in New Zealand is very tight. In other words, they ask for a lot of security, particularly the security of the residential property owned by the owners. And that's a huge restriction on people wanting to take risks in business. So, yes, the restriction on capital and the, uh, the difficulty in borrowing money from the banks has been a severe restraint on small and medium-sized companies who want to grow. Others, such as economist Brent Layton, are less worried about the future of traditional exports. New Zealand has turned itself uh, successfully into a service economy uh, and a lot of those services are in fact export services. Um, people just don't see them like they saw old traditional exporters. Um, somebody running a hotel, somebody running a cafe in, in Lambton Quay is effectively servicing uh, in part uh, tourists and visitors and certainly the people in the service industry in Queenstown are uh, in the export business. The New Zealand dollar is continuing to march closer towards the 80 cent US mark. A short time ago, the Kiwi was buying. The boom in housing is a double whammy for exporters. It's increased the price of New Zealand products overseas. It's also fueled inflation, which the Reserve Bank has had to tame by hiking the cost of borrowing. High interest rates attract the savings of foreigners, which in turn push up the dollar, curbing exporters' profits. The Reserve Bank Governor Alan Bollard has not been afraid to lambast the investment decisions of New Zealand households. Here he is talking to Radio New Zealand's Mary Wilson on Checkpoint. New Zealanders are prepared to go out and take on more and more debt to buy houses way out of line with what other OECD countries are doing. Because the houses are giving them an excellent rate of return. Well, they're looking very short term on that. They haven't looked back to the long periods when... Uh, housing prices went down, which could happen again in the future. But you they keep saying that, at, and it sorry, doesn't come down. Mary, they haven't also looked at the other implications of that, which is running up big debt themselves, buying houses, and letting the, and not not putting money into New Zealand businesses. And that's the bigger picture we're looking at. Two parliamentary committees are now looking at housing. One, whether the Reserve Bank needs new tools to combat housing-driven inflation. The other, an inquiry into housing affordability. It seems unlikely, though, that either would recommend new tax laws on property investment. Both Labour and National have ruled out a capital gains tax, while any attempt to end negative gearing looks set to struggle for cross-party support. 
This is despite the IMF and the Reserve Bank suggesting New Zealand does need to look at a more level playing field when it comes to tax on investments. The Council of Trade Unions economist Peter Conway says it's disappointing that politicians won't address the tax issue. We would never pretend that it's a silver bullet. You know, around housing it's not a silver bullet. Around lifting labour productivity it's not a silver bullet. But when you look around the OECD, you look at other countries, it's there. And why is it there? It's there to stop speculation in housing, to try to keep houses more affordable. And it's there to have an even playing field so that you do get more investment in um, productive enterprise and th that means more capital per worker and that means higher labour productivity and that means higher wages. So that's, that's what other countries do. Why would we not do that? The CTU's counterpart, Business New Zealand, does not favour a capital gains tax. However, many economists and business groups do. John Errington, the president of the New Zealand Manufacturers and Exporters Association. It's one of the tools in the bag, and it's um, a tool which would address that imbalance, as are other things, like making investment in superannuation, which often flows through to um, productive enterprise, as in um, things like stamp duty that they have in Australia. Those are other tools which would achieve the same outcome, um, but capital gains are certainly in there with them. Brian Gaynor also believes a look at the tax on property is needed. I'm not suggesting you introduce a capital gains tax on the ordinary residential home or on, the, say, the batch. But if somebody owns 15 or 18 or 20 residential properties and they're running it as a business, surely they should be taxed the same as any other business and they shouldn't be allowed the same tax deductions as other businesses unless they actually pay tax when they make profits. But PricewaterhouseCoopers tax expert John Shewan says a capital gains tax is not the answer. I think the tax system is the wrong place to look for the silver bullet. It's not sitting in the tax system. It's interesting, if you look at the overseas places like Australia, which do tax capital gains, their over-reliance on, on housing and rental housing as an investment is in fact more pronounced than New Zealand. So tax in, in and of itself is not the issue here. I think you can create distortions by a tax system, but that's more around the area of tax rates than base, and I don't think imposing a capital gains tax on uh, rental housing, for example, will do anything other than create distortions and it could in fact put rentals up as yields go down uh, for landlords. But what of Australia? Have investors in the lucky country also turned to property like Kiwis? I'm at a Sydney train station heading for the outer suburb of Oatley to try to find out. This, this particular property here is again close to public transport. It's um, it's an older style um, uh, brick home, three bedrooms, and that's been uh, listed and sold approximately five hundred and seventy thousand. Australia has most definitely experienced a property boom, although in recent times prices in Sydney have fallen in some areas. Oatley real estate agent and president of the New South Wales Real Estate Institute, Christine Castle, explains. Early 2002, 2003, where prices were really high, it was a very competitive marketplace, but of course it's steadied up since then. In fact, we've had a decline uh, really since those times, and of course now we're pretty much a flat, even keel, but there's no sense of actually any further decline. It is just steady as it goes. What, was the, what caused the decline? 
basically I think it got to a point where it was saturated, the market was saturated, those who wanted to make a step up did, they actually went out and bought, but of course there's only so much mortgage that people can actually cope with, so it reaches that point. When looking across the country, Australia's housing boom is easily as pronounced as New Zealand's. Like New Zealanders, Aussies have taken on massive amounts of debt to buy property. Like New Zealand, prices have doubled in just a few years. And like New Zealand, affordability issues are now a major concern. But there are key differences. Australia's stock market is soaring, while the ability of its economy to grow without causing inflation has been consistently better than New Zealand's. And a key difference, of course, is that property investment across the ditch is subject to a capital gains tax. HSBC Bank Chief Economist John Edwards. We are tougher, I think, on uh, investment property. That is, we do apply a capital gains tax to the sale of an investment property. And also, I think we must much more rigorously enforce provisions that you are unable to deduct from your income the cost of an investment property, and unless it actually is an investment property that's producing rent. The fact that housing has boomed in Australia in spite of a capital gains tax would tend to boost the argument that such a move would achieve little in New Zealand. However, John Edwards says New Zealand should consider the idea. It would be more helpful in New Zealand if the housing cycle was less explosive than it is, and tax changes might help. In general, it ought to be the case that if you tax things equally, you get a better distribution of uh, capital between competing uses, and I think it would help the funding of New Zealand corporations if housing was a relatively less attractive alternative. And there are those who question the strength of Australia's capital gains tax. The Associate Professor of Economics and Finance at the University of Western Sydney, Steve Keane. We had capital gains on 100% of the capital gain, and then I've forgotten when it actually happened, but we made that 50% of the capital gain. So your income is being taxed at 100%, you know, whatever the tax rate is, and your capital gains taxed at 50%. Where are you going to put your money? It encourages you to go into more speculation. Equally, we've always exempted the family home from capital gains tax, and yet let your negative gear on on the investment properties. Well, a combination of all that stuff is basically saying, dive in and gamble, please. And that's what Australians have done. Ironically, Dr Keane says the huge speculation in property of late has actually caused a rental crisis. 95% of the money that people have been borrowing has simply been to gamble on the price of houses. It's, of course it's driven the price of houses up, but it hasn't increased the number of houses, which is why Australia's gone from the laughable situation of a so-called housing boom right into a rental crisis. Rod Fearing, Chairman of the Residential Property Council of Australia, blames the performance of the Australian share market for a drop-off in rental investment. The fact that the share market has been delivering yields of you know, 10 and 20%, or 20% more likely than 10, uh, over the last three or four years has meant that uh, relatively speaking, um, equities have been a hell of a lot more attractive than the residential property. The yields just aren't there uh, at the moment, even on a total return basis. You're talking around about pre-tax 6-ish percent. The strength of the share market has prompted Christine Castle from the New South Wales Real Estate Institute to plead for an end to the capital gains tax. We've actually put forward a proposal to government uh, that actually capital gains tax for investors that do provide that very vital accommodation after 10 years that it should be phased out. That would encourage long-term investors and again providing um, good solid accommodation not quickly in and out of real estate which can be difficult. But why hasn't the share market suffered in the face of the property boom 
as it has in New Zealand. Some of it can be put down to the huge resource boom. However, John Edwards says it's also been Australia's focus on savings. 9% of wages and salaries is compulsorily deducted and put into superannuation accounts and I suppose somewhere roughly between 40 and 50% of that then turns up in the purchase of Australian shares. This makes a huge difference to the size of the market and the relative attractiveness of issuing equity as opposed to issuing debt. The Australian Shareholders Association Chief Executive Stuart Wilson says the public has also kept faith in the stock market. Half of Australian adults have invested directly or indirectly. Now, that's not only because of superannuation, which is uh, compulsory in Australia, but also because of some big demutualisations, that of Qantas, Commonwealth Bank, um, AMP, uh, they're, they're, they're some of those, and uh, the clients of those organisations and the general public have been invited to invest there. So there behind the wall is market supervision, so it's the people who regulate uh, the conduct of the market. And then downstairs, uh, in the less salubrious surroundings, that's where I am. Back at NZX headquarters, Mark Weldon offers a tour of his new facilities. They are now undoubtedly world class. However, it's clear Mr Weldon still has a lot of work to do. The threat of the NZX one day having to merge with the Australian market remains a pet subject of business commentators here and in Australia. But there are reasons to believe the NZX can survive on its own. Savings from Labor's new workplace KiwiSaver scheme are starting to make their way to the stock market, while new tax breaks on shares grouped in managed funds, known as PIEs, will make investing in the share market much more attractive. Mark Weldon. Michael Cullen has done a fantastic job there. He has done something that's quite quite lasting I think and, and will really be one of two or three things this government is, is, is very remembered for and what he's done very sensibly is bring the pie tax regime in at exactly the same date so it all works t together, uh, it's very well organised and uh, I think it will make a difference over time. Brian Gaynor agrees. The KiwiSaver scheme and the um, new tax regime on pies is a very positive step. My only criticism is it's taken a long long time for it to be introduced. But Bruce Shepherd of the Shareholders Association says more work needs to be done on public relations. The market needs to be seen to be fair and not rigged. Over the last 20 years, at least 12 of them uh, have been a wild west. The last eight, we've now got world-class processes around. And it's fair to say that most of our companies are now run by ethical people who genuinely want to do the best they can for their owners, and that message needs to get through. Mr Shepherd says New Zealanders' financial literacy is also very poor by OECD standards, and that will need to be improved through education. The government has also recognised the need to help the NZX, offering to hold a summit on its future in Wellington next month. It's a future its CEO Mark Weldon says all New Zealanders should be interested in. Although it might seem when you're sitting there, you know, deciding am I going to buy $10,000 of Raycon or Fisher & Paykel Healthcare, like that's really an, an individual decision, and it is, when you aggregate that across the economy, that capital is productive and helps New Zealand companies give us a shot at getting a really great economic future. So it is pretty important.